Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And is there anyone who has not received the small group questions for tonight? We could make sure that you have a copy as you can uh, take notes during this, uh, during this sermon to uh, better be equipped to discuss tonight. And feel free uh, to write on the back of that as we go through our outline um, this morning because we have seven points. All right, so uh, figure 20 minutes each will be, uh, be in be out of here by small groups. So, Ephesians chapter 4, and let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started. Help us, Lord, as we open up the scriptures to be convinced of what we see before us. And may we be eager to put it into practice, always looking for ways to be diligent about the work of the Lord. For we know our labor is not in vain because it is energized and brought to harvest by your grace. So we thank you, Lord, for the chance to serve you, to love you, be one of your children. For it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series this morning on the, the matter of church membership. And obviously I was, uh, well, maybe you didn't know this, but I was sick last week and uh, Pastor Mike so kindly stepped in to, uh, to fill in. And so it's necessary for us, because we've uh, been break, uh, broken from this topic for uh, a number of days, to review uh, where we have been so far in this series. So we began by asking this question, is church membership in the Bible. And while we noted that you won't find a command to become a member of a local church, uh, and you won't find a verse that says that John joined the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, uh, we did note that the concept of church membership is all over the New Testament. We began to consider the various passages that describe church membership, And after considering the evidence of membership in the New Testament, here is what we concluded uh, from our our study. So whether you call it membership or whether you call it partnership or some other title, at the very least, I think we can say this, that a formal relationship existed between an individual Christian and a church. And that both the individual Christian and the church were aware of this relationship and the responsibilities that came with it. Now, there are probably lots of different opinions on membership and its importance and and what it is. But I think at the very least, when we look at the New Testament, we we see this formal relationship that exists between a, a believer and a church. Well, once we established the fact of membership, that it existed in the New Testament, we moved on to consider the meaning of membership. And the definition we've been using has four parts, and we've week by week been unpacking this definition and considering the, the scriptures. And so here's the definition we've been, we've been using. Church membership is a formal relationship or a covenant, if you will, between a particular church and a Christian that consists of three things. So part one, it's a formal relationship that consists of three things. Number one, the church's affirmation 
of the Christian's gospel profession. Number two, the church's promise to give oversight to the Christian's life of discipleship. And number three, well, we'll come there in the, the weeks to come. So I'll give you a cliffhanger there, all right? So that's where we'll, we'll come in, uh, in, in, our, in our time to come, all right? But, but so far, this is what we've seen, that it's a, it's a formal relationship that consists, number one, of the church's affirmation of the Christian's gospel profession, and number two, and what we're going to consider this week, the church's promise to give oversight to the individual Christian's life of discipleship. So last week we saw that when a local church brings someone into their membership, that the church is affirming their profession of faith. The church is, is saying to the individual, as far as we can tell, based on your profession of faith and based on your life of obedience, that we see you as a genuine follower of Jesus Christ and we welcome you into our membership. Now the, the same on the flip side, when, it, when a church is forced to remove someone who has lived in, in in unrepentant sin, here's what the church is saying to that individual. Based on your lack of clarity on your profession of faith or based on your, your lifestyle, we can no longer affirm your profession of faith and can no longer keep you as a member of this local church, at which time the church removes the individual from, from their midst. Now the authority, as we saw last time, the authority to make such assessments or judgments has been given to the church by Christ. It's not something the church just does because they, they feel like they have the ability to do that. What we saw is that with the power of the keys of the kingdom from Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, that the church has the right and the responsibility to make judgments as to what is a true gospel profession and, and who is a true gospel professor. And we saw this played out in Galatians and in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So the church has the responsibility, in other words, what we said last time, to guard the front door of membership and to exercise the back door of discipline. And as they do this, they, they, they use the power of the keys that, that Christ has given them. So this is what we've covered so far. Okay, but now we want to move in to the next aspect of our definition this morning as we talk about church membership. And so the next aspect of this this formal relationship, right? So it's a formal relationship, and it's, it's, it, it, that consists of three things. Number one, the church's affirmation of the, of the Christian's profession of faith. But now we get into the second aspect here, and that's that the church promises to oversee the Christian's life of discipleship. Okay, so when someone comes into our membership, the, the body of believers as a whole is, is promising to oversee that person's life of discipleship. Now, don't be confused by the term discipleship. It's just their life of growth in Christ. Okay, we're all on this journey of discipleship, of becoming more like Christ. And the church, the body of believers, is, is watching out for our spiritual condition. Now, in unpacking this idea, there is one text in particular that I think sums up perfectly the church's responsibility to its members. And that is the passage that's before us here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Now you'll notice this as the passage that we memorized at the beginning of the year. So I, you probably don't even need to read it in your Bibles. You, we could say it together, and you probably still know it word for word, right? I'm, I'm confident of that fact. EJ, is that still the case? Word for Okay, all right. Now as we, as we worked toward our our ministry changes back in, in December and in January. 
the passage that I walked through was Ephesians chapter 4. And at the time, you obviously didn't know what changes were coming, and then once they were rolled out, there was still question as to, okay, what, what, will everything, what will everything look like? But I hope now, as we come back to Ephesians 4, that you can look at some of the changes we've made, and you can look at Ephesians 4, and you can, you can see, okay, now I start to see the motivation behind it or, or, or the, the purpose that our, our pastors have, have, have put before us in, in, some of these, in some of these changes. I hope a light goes on for you this morning as we unpack what Ephesians chapter 4 says. Okay, so with these thoughts in mind, let's turn our attention to this passage and consider the responsibility that the church has to oversee the discipleship of its members. So let's begin in verse 11. We read this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, what is this passage all about? Okay, what is this passage all about? Well, your first answer might be, well, this passage is about the various gifts that the Spirit gives to individuals in the church. And to an extent, that answer would be correct. After all, this is one of the Apostle Paul's lists of spiritual gifts that he gives in the New Testament, along with Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you would be right in saying this passage is about spiritual gifts because verse 16 talks about each part of the body working together as they are gifted and joined together. And so there's certainly this idea in verse 16. So yeah, this passage is about spiritual gifts, but I want you to notice a slight emphasis in this passage that's not in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12. Okay, the slight emphasis is this. Paul is showing us more specifically why Christ has given spiritual gifts to believers. Okay, his intent here is not just to show that there are a variety of gifts, but his intent here is to show us why the spiritual gifts have been given. And the answer to that question is, can be summed up in this word in, of, of maturity. Christ has gifted individuals in the church so that the church would be brought up into maturity, or so that the believers in the church would be brought up into spiritual maturity. Okay? So I want you to notice that maturity is a central theme in this passage. So just notice a couple of places in, this, in these short verses that emphasize this theme of maturity. Verse 13 states it outright. Okay? It says that we're to be built up to a mature manhood. Then verse 14 says it in sort of the opposite way, so that we may no longer be children, or in other words, we might say immature. Verse 15 goes on to say, we are to 
grow up in every way into him. Okay, again, emphasizing that idea of, of growing up into maturity. And then verse 16, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. So what we're talking about in this passage is why Christ has given the spiritual gifts, and the answer to that is, is all about the maturity of, of, of believers. So that's the reason he gave gifts, so that you and I might reach spiritual maturity. He didn't save us so that we could stay in, in our current condition or in the residue of our sins, but rather he has given the gifts to, to help us to be sanctified and conformed to his image. If you're here this morning and you've been blessed at some point in your life to have a newborn, you, you cherish those moments while the baby is, is little. The snuggles are precious. The skin is soft. And there are many things to love about those early years. But as much as you might wish at times that they would stay in that condition forever, that's not your ultimate plan and desire, okay? Or you would never sleep. Rather, you have dreams about sandcastles and bike rides and roller coasters and academic accomplishments and graduation and marriage and someday grandchildren. Okay? Your plan and your desire is to see that child that God's given you grow up into maturity and bring you joy in the, in the process of doing it. Well, the same is true of our spiritual lives. For those of us who have been born again, Christ's plan and purpose for us is that we would grow up into spiritual maturity reflecting the character of Christ. Now, this passage shows us how the Lord uses the church to accomplish that. So this is not just about individual maturity and the desire that we grow up into individual maturity, but how the Lord uses the body of Christ to help us grow up into this condition and state of, of maturity. So this is what I want to do. I want, I want to walk through this passage and show us how the Lord uses the church to accomplish this in our, in our lives. So we'll consider seven points that will just build on each other as we go through, as we go through these, uh, this passage. Okay, number one, we see that Christ has given the church certain gifted individuals. And you see that in verse 11. It says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Okay, so more specifically, who are these individuals? Well, the apostles and the prophets, uh, these are two groups of gifted individuals that, as I understand Scripture, are no longer functioning in the church today. The apostles were individuals who were specifically selected by Christ. They were gifted with the ability to perform signs and wonders, or sometimes called the signs of an apostle, and who were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. But once the original apostles went off the scene, there were no longer apostles um, in, in that day. So, so you'll notice that the apostles were not self-perpetuating. When you get to 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy chapter 2, the apostle Paul says to Timothy, you train faithful men who then are able to teach the word also. Okay? We're not apostles making more apostles and more apostles. It's raise up faithful men who can, who can teach the scriptures because the apostles were a unique group of individuals. The second group mentioned in verse 11 are the prophets. These were spokesmen of God through, and they were, they were second in rank 
to the, to the apostles. Their responsibility was to deliver revelation and messages from God to his people. Okay? And you could see how this was necessary because in this time, the New Testament scriptures weren't complete. And so God would speak through prophets to individual congregations so that they would receive direction and revelation from the Lord. But once the New Testament was complete, there was no longer need for the, uh, the, the ministry of the prophets, and so they went off the scene as well. But while these two gifts no longer continue in the church today, the church does continue to be built on the foundation of the, of the apostles and the prophets. Right? If you were to turn back just a couple pages, you would see in chapter 2, verse 20, that phrase that, that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ being the, the cornerstone. So though these gifts have ceased in the church today, they, they served as a foundation. Okay, now just think about that image of a foundation. Once a foundation is laid, you don't keep building more and more foundation. You build on the foundation. And that's the idea of the apostles and the prophets here. That they laid the foundation for the church. And now, every time we, we open up the scriptures, we continue to build the church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, the next gifted individual to be mentioned in verse 11 is that of the evangelist. Okay, he gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave evangelists. And, and scriptures don't describe for us in detail the gift of evangelism. I think most of us, for our, our minds, we would go to a famous quote-unquote evangelist like Billy Graham, who had sort of an itinerant ministry and spoke to at, at, at different places. But I think if we look at the, the New Testament picture of what a, an evangelist is, we probably would say that these individuals are, are individuals who took the gospel to places where it was not. Or we might say today that an evangelist was probably better described as a, a missionary church planter, someone who packs up and brings the gospel to a place where it does not exist. We can't be dogmatic on that because the scriptures aren't abundantly clear, but that seems to be what the, what the case is. The last group of individuals, it's tough to know here whether it's one individual or two, because of the grammar in verse 11. But Paul says, pastors or shepherds and teachers. And he may have one group of individuals in mind, pastors or shepherds who are responsible to shepherd and teach God's word to, to the flock. And whatever the case, whether it's two individuals or, or one individual here, it doesn't change the, the emphasis of this passage. But for the sake of our discussion this morning, we're going to refer to these individuals as pastor-teachers. Okay, So in verse 11, the Lord has given the church certain gifted individuals. Two of the individuals are no longer in existence in the, in the local church, but the others are still functioning, evangelists or missionaries and pastor teachers. Okay, So that's our first point. We see the Lord has gifted certain individuals in the church. Secondly, the responsibility of these gifted individuals is primarily one of equipping. Okay? The responsibility of these gifted individuals is primarily one of equipping. So notice in your passage of Scripture here how verse 11 transitions into verse 12. He's given gifted individuals, and then he describes the role of these individuals in the church, and it says that they are to equip the saints. Now, what does the word equip 
mean? Or what does Paul have in mind here when he says that they are to equip? Well, these gifted individuals, well, one commentator says this way, these gifted individuals in the church have the ministry of, and he uses this word, preparation. Preparation. So in other words, it's the task of, of these individuals to prepare the saints for the work of the ministry. And in this case, I think the image of a coach is, is most helpful. Okay, the responsibility of a coach is one of preparation and equipping. His role is to, to teach the game. His role is to, to prepare his team for in-game situations. He has to know his players well enough to know in what role they can serve and, and, and best see the team thrive. And the better a coach is at equipping, then the more prepared the team will be, the more successful a team will be. But let's, let's pick up on this analogy of a coach, though. What if a coach, in addition to coaching, had a number of other responsibilities to, to give himself to as well? Okay, so what if he had to wash the uniforms of the players after practice and, and after games? What if he had to organize all the, the travel details as to when they were going to fly to this location and that location and, and in what hotels they were going to stay? What if he had to manage the players' salaries and, and contracts and things like that? What if he had to then also tape ankles and elbows and knees and whatever else people have taped uh, before every practice and before every game? Could he do these things? Well, I think we would say, yeah, he could, he could probably do these things in addition to his coaching responsibilities. But we might ask the question, could he do these things and coach well? Well, that's a different question. We might say probably not. Because every moment he spends doing these other things will take away from his primary responsibility of equipping the team to play their best. And after a short amount of time, I think the team will start to feel the effects of a coach with divided responsibilities. Well, as we walk into these verses of Ephesians 4, it's helpful to distinguish between what pastor teachers can do and what pastor teachers should do. Okay? And making that distinction is, I think, helpful for both pastors and for congregations. A helpful example of this is found in our scripture reading of Acts chapter 6. You don't have to turn there because I think the passage is familiar enough to you. But the, the issue in the early church was the neglect of certain widows in the daily distribution of food. And it was an urgent problem for a couple reasons. Number one, there were people in the congregation not being ministered to. And number two, it was becoming a source of tension or disunity within the church. Frustration was starting to arise. And so it was a problem that required decisive and immediate action. One solution to the problem was for the apostles, or one possible solution was for the apostles to, to, to take responsibility themselves and to, to, to find a way for them to, to, to minister to these widows themselves. That way they could assure that it would be taken care of. But notice what they say to the whole congregation in verse 2. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's not that the apostles were too good 
to, to serve in this capacity. It was something that they could do. But they also recognized that in light of their other more weighty responsibilities, that this is something that they should not do. And so they made a distinction between what they could do and what they should do. And in that case, it served the congregation and them well. Now, without going into details about what what pastors should do or what congregational members should do, I just want us to notice at the very least there should be this distinction between what we can do and what we should do. And when pastors busy themselves with things that members can do, I think two things happen. Number one, it, it robs them of other more primary responsibilities to which they should give attention. And number two, it robs the members of the church from opportunities for service. And so we should always be evaluating and considering, and I, even in my mind, I'm always trying to think about our, our, our pastoral staff in terms of what, what are we doing and what should we be doing and do the two things line up? Now, there's much to say here, but just for the sake of our discussion this morning, we just want to notice that this, that this prime, one of the primary works of pastors is the work of preparation, preparing saints for the work of the ministry. All right, let's bring ourselves now to point number three. It is the duty of believers to do the work of the ministry. It is the duty of believers to do the work of the ministry. Okay, so notice how the text progresses. There are certain individuals given to the church. Their role is to equip and prepare the saints so that the saints or the believers can carry out the work of the ministry. Now, the word ministry here is really the Greek word from which we get our word service or, or even translated as deacon. And it was previously connected with the idea of, of serving tables. But more specifically, as we look at it in its biblical context, it's, it's every member is to be active in the service of the Lord. Okay, that's what the ministry, what saints doing the ministry is, is, is being active in the service of the Lord. Now, notice... It's not those who are in full-time vocational ministry who are responsible alone to do the work of ministry. Rather, what we see in verse 12 is that every believer is in full-time ministry. Let me say that again. Every believer is in full-time ministry. You are a player in the game. You're a a full participant. You're not just a reserve in case we need you. You're not just a bench warmer. If the analogy is basketball, you're one of the five. If it's football, you are one of the 11. Because everyone is involved in using the gifts that the Lord has given them to fulfill the work of ministry. Okay? Every member is in the game. So the question becomes, and it's really only, well, what role do I serve? What role do I play? And how do I use my gifts most effectively? Okay? But the assumption here is already this, that, that everybody is, is in the game. Okay? Now, for a church to be healthy, every member needs to own the weight of that responsibility. Okay? 
So in order for a church to, to function at its, at its most healthiest, the, the, the majority of the members, the, the, the full body of members, need to feel the weight of what verse 12 says. Like, yeah, this is me. I'm supposed to use the gifts that God has given me to build up the body of Christ. Not to simply sit on the sideline or to, to maybe give part of my time. But, but no, it's the whole body of Christ building up one another and doing the work of the ministry. And the more the individual members own and feel the weight of this responsibility, then the healthier the congregation becomes. Okay, now let's move then to number four, and we continue to build on what we see here, okay? Number four, we see that the work of the ministry is that which builds up the body of Christ. Okay, so as we're continuing to read through here, in verse 11, he gives the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to equip the saints, verse 12, for the work of ministry. And then it says this, for building up the body of Christ. So this is helpful for us because this ministry... Doing the work of the ministry is not just like, well, I have a job, and I do this job like I'm an usher from, from, from 10 to 11 every, every Sunday, and then I don't have to do anything else to, 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 to serve the Lord because I do my ushering job. But rather what we see is that the work of the ministry is bigger than a job. It says it's that which builds up the body of Christ. Okay, so it's, it's, it's bigger than that. So, so let's say you're convinced here this morning that, that, yes, you need to be more invested in building up the body of Christ and more invested in the ministry, but then your question is, okay, so well, where do I start? What do I do? How do I think about using the, way, the gifts that the Lord's given me to, to invest in, in the church? Okay, where do I start? Well, if the church is a people and not a building— and if we get away from thinking about the church as a people and not a building, well, then we start to see that the opportunities for service are endless. And the place I like to start is with all the one another commands in Scripture. Okay, so, so I just did a search on my Bible software program and searching for all the places that you find the phrase one another in Scripture. And obviously there are a lot of phrases that that aren't related to this topic as, you know, you read a phrase that they said to one another or, um, you know, in Revelation 6, so that they could slay one another, all right? That, that's not what we're supposed to be doing to, to each other, all right? So, but I just did this search and I'm trying to figure out how many one another commands there are in the New Testament. It's tough to say because some of them are repeated over and over again, like love one another is a primary command in the Scripture or encourage one another is a primary command. Four of the one another's are about kissing, all right? So those are, those are you know, greet one another with a holy kiss. So those are, you do what you will with those. But, so there are lots of one another's, though, in, in the scriptures. I totaled up about something in the 20s, maybe like 23 not repeated one another's in scripture. 17 of them positive and six of them negative, okay? And if I just, if, if, if you took the time and just went through the, the one another's of Scripture, it would start to open up your eyes as to, okay, here is my responsibility to, to my fellow members at Maranatha, and here are all the ways in which I can serve them. Okay, so we start to think about, well, this is, I, I'm busy about the work of the ministry. Then we look at all the one another's. Well, here are the ways in which we're busy about 
about ministry. So what the one another commands do is they give us tangible ways to think about ministry. Okay, so it's just not like, well, I, I, I don't know where to start. Okay, well, the one another's are the place to start. They give us a, a, a framework or, or concrete ways to, to build up the body of Christ. So just an example I, I shared a few, a few months ago. I was talking to my father-in-law, and we were talking about uh, a family friend that he and I both have known for a couple decades. And my father-in-law just made this comment in passing, I don't know if we were riding in the car or something together, and he said this. He said, Bobby is a, we'll call him Bobby, okay? Bobby is a really nice guy. I just wish he would be more faithful to church. He's fairly regular on Sunday mornings, but there seem to be so many barriers to him being fully plugged in. And I was just listening to the comment and knowing the guy was that was a fair assessment, I think. And I just listened, but I didn't think about this until after the fact. And so like an hour or two later, I came back out and I said to this, I, I said to this to him, I said, what if instead of waiting for a pastor to encourage Bobby to be more faithful in church, what if you took him out to breakfast or to lunch and encouraged him to be more faithful to, to Christ's body? You already have the relationship with him that no pastor does. He's seen and respected you for, for decades now, so he sees what faithfulness to Christ's people looks like. And frankly, it's going to mean more coming from you than it is from a pastor whose job it is to sit down and tell people to, to come to church more often. Okay, It's going to be more meaningful for you. So, so what, if, what if you started owning the role of overseeing this guy's life of discipleship. Okay? So when we start to talk about when we start to talk about the ministry of 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 of, of member to member ministry, that it's that which builds up the body of Christ, I mean, these are the kinds of things we're thinking about. How do we admonish and encourage one another to make it faithfully to, to that day? And I think this illustration helps us because it shifts our thinking away from thinking about ministry as jobs to thinking about ministry as people. And if ministry is people, then the opportunities are, are, are endless. And we'll talk about some of these things as we, as we get to the conclusion. Okay, so ministry is that which builds the body up into maturity. Now, fifthly, let's notice this. The goal of ministry is to bring every member to maturity in Christ. Okay, so I want you to notice how verse 13 begins. Okay, verse 13 says this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Now notice just that small word, all, at the beginning of verse 13. The goal of ministry is to build up the body to bring every member to maturity in Christ. The picture that we get here is that there is no member left behind in the process of bringing the church to maturity. Well, so then we have to feel the weight of that. And we have to have eyes to see who's here and, and who's not here. And we have to have eyes to see who may be falling by the wayside because it's, 
all of our responsibility to make sure all of us make it to maturity in Christ. Okay? And that's the goal here. It says in verse 13. It's stated positively in verse 13 and negatively in verse 14. Right? Verse 13, it's until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of Christ. So we measure up, line up with the fullness of Christ. And then it's stated negatively, so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay? It's, it's not like this battle is, is neutral. Okay? This, this, this battle's not neutral, as in all we need is a reminder that we need to do this, or all we need is more information. Okay? If it's just lack of information that's working against us, well, then we just inform. But but there's immaturity working against this goal of, of maturity. And there's people being deceived by the world that works against this goal of maturity. So it's this wrestling of, of trying to bring everybody to maturity in Christ, but then some people are resistant to it because they're hardened or deceived by sin. And, and they're pulled toward the world, and, and our job as a congregation is to pull them back toward Christ, and it's this wrestling of verse 13 and 14 against each other, trying to bring children to maturity. And anybody who's parented teenagers knows that this is the battle, right? You've got, you're trying to pull them to a maturity, and there's immaturity pulling on the other end that's often more weightier and stronger in, in, those, in those categories, okay? And so this is the battle that's taking place here. It's not just like a neutral batter, battle. So we're fighting against the deceitful schemes of Satan that are out there, the, the deceitfulness of sin, and we have to work hard to bring every member to maturity in, in Christ. Okay? And maturity is the way in which we fight sim- such temptations. Well, continuing to move through the passage, we see this, that the goal is accomplished as believers lovingly speak the truth into each other's lives. Okay, he goes on to say in verse 15, My translation says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, now, the translation, speaking the truth in love, is probably doesn't communicate the full concept of what the Apostle Paul wants to see here. The word is literally, it's not speaking in truth and love, it's the word is literally truthing in love. So it's not limited to just speaking the truth. It's, it's living the truth together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Or I like the way that the Net Bible translates this. Practicing the truth in love were to grow up into him who is the head. So as we live out life together as a church, the way we live out the truth together is, is like this. We, we model it for one another. We remind each other of it. You know, someone's going through a particular struggle, and we say, hey, don't forget, and we remind them of certain truths. We, we confront one another with it. When we start to, to, to drift off into sin, we, we pull each other back, reminding us of the truth. And this is all to be done, Paul says, in a spirit of love. When I think of this kind of idea of, of truthing in love, I think Titus 2 is the perfect example. Older men teaching younger men, older women teaching younger women to, to live life in, in obedience to the truth 
and, and investing in one another lovingly. Okay? So the goal of maturity is accomplished as we live in the truth together. And then lastly, we see this point seven. The goal is accomplished as each member fulfills his or her specific role in the body. Okay? The goal is accomplished as gifted people do what they were gifted to do. Okay? So he says in verse 16, from, the ho- from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, he says this, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay? The picture of verse 16 is each member of the body, uniquely gifted, works so that the church builds itself up. I think the game of football is a good analogy here because of how diverse the players are on a football field. Right? In, in what other sport can a five foot ten, I guess that would be right here, uh, five foot ten, 185 pound athlete compete on the same field as a six foot six, 375 pound athlete and for it to be okay? Or I guess if we put like a kicker in there, right, a, a five foot six, 110 pound individual on the same field as a six foot six, 375 pound, just slighted all the kickers there, so I hope Jason Hansen's not, not listening. All right, so the, the, the diversity on a football field is a good illustration for us, okay? Now, each individual has, has varying roles, okay? The quarterback throws, running backs run, wide receivers receive, but none of that is possible without offensive linemen, okay? The offensive line is made up of really big guys who don't seem that athletic, but man, do they play a vital role. Nothing else happens unless they do their job effectively. They block for the quarterback. They block for the running backs. And the same is true of the defense. You've got different sizes, different skills, but a diverse group of people working to accomplish a single goal. And when everyone plays their role, well, that's when success happens. But when even one player when even one player doesn't perform up to their ability, the whole team suffers. Okay, so just imagine on a football field if you have a left tackle, okay, that's quarterback, left tackle, who does not block effectively. And the opposing edge rusher gets in the backfield within seconds of every single snap. Well, the quarterback can't throw, then the receivers can't catch, They can't advance the ball, so they may have to do other things like put other players assisting and helping block. Well, then that player then can't be used someplace else if he has to help with blocking. The team might be able to manage for a little bit, but they won't be successful. And so it is with the body of Christ. Every one of you has been given a gift, maybe more gifts than just one. And, And if every member uses their gift to pursue this goal of maturity and doing the work of the ministry to, to pursue maturity, well, then the body is, is healthy and it thrives. But if, if people sit on the sidelines, then other members have to, to pick up more weight and carry more weight 
in order that the goal of pursuing maturity happens. And so we might be able to get by for a while, but we're only thriving if every member pours into this goal of maturity in Christ. Okay, so this is what we see in Ephesians chapter 4, this every member ministry. Okay? Now, what does this mean for our discussion on membership this morning? So a couple of implications. As a member, implication number one, as a member of a local church, this is where you are promising your fellow members to oversee their life of discipleship. Okay? So a local church gives a context to what we just read in Ephesians chapter 4. If every member is to build up the body so that we reach maturity, what membership does is it gives a context for where that happens. So if you look around the room, these are the individuals to whom you are responsible to oversee their life of discipleship. And this is what our covenant says. We will endeavor to watch over one another in brotherly love. And then it gives some examples. We will remember each other in prayer. Well, this is one of the ways that we build one another up into maturity as we, we pray for one another. We'll come to that in just a minute. We will aid each other in distress. Okay? And from time to time, we have members who are in the midst of distress. We have two members in rehab right now from, from, from actually both hip replacements. And what does it look like for the body of Christ to aid those individuals in distress? We will cultivate Christian sympathy. We will settle and resolve disputes quickly. These are just some practical and tangible ways that we, that we watch over one another and oversee the life of discipleship. It's interesting because as we watch over one another in life, our life of discipleship, we do this sort of in a positive and negative way. Sometimes it calls for building one another up, and, and sometimes it calls for, if you see a brother who's overtaken in a fault, restore such an individual so that they're not uh, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So sometimes it's, it's, it's warning and correcting, and other times it's encouraging and building up. But all of this is the church overseeing the life of discipleship of its members. And so as I said before, everyone has to feel the weight and responsibility of of this task. Implication number two, this every member ministry, I think, is a mind shift from how we typically think about church membership. Okay, when we typically think about church membership, we might ask the question, well, what does the church have to offer me? And we start to think in terms of uh, consumerism, okay? And, and, and Ephesians 4 sort of throws consumerism out, out the window, okay? Rather than treating churches like a Target or a Walmart or a Meyer, and I, I go to the places that have the things that I need, rather it's, it's more like we're wearing a Meyer shirt and we work there, and we're invested in the building up of this, of this particular place. We're not just consumers shopping to get what we need. We're, we're involved in the ownership to, to build this place up and invest in it. So you're not asking the question, what does this church have to offer me? You're saying, I'm, I come here because I've got a job to do. 
this group of people are to be built up into maturity in Christ, and I've got to be invested in that, and if I don't carry my weight, then we're not going to thrive as we can and, and should. Okay, so we get away from, when we, when we look at Ephesians 4, we get away from this consumeristic mentality, and we become invested in the people around us. Lastly, implication, we conclude from this text that we cannot do our spiritual journey on our own. Okay? We need the church, and the church needs us. Okay? There's no such thing as, as Lone Ranger Christianity. Okay? The whole picture of this passage is how the Lord uses others in the church to build us up into maturity in Christ. And so that's the third implication we see. Now, quickly, just some practical ways to watch over the spiritual life of your fellow members. Number one, pray through the directory. Okay, pray through the directory. And while we're at it, if your picture's not on the directory, put it on there, all right? So that's, that was side note, all right? That's all true, but uh, not the emphasis, okay? Pray through the directory. One of the more encouraging things I heard in the last two months uh, was uh, two months ago, I'll, I'll embarrass Bob Crump for a moment, but he was coming to small group, and instead of driving to the McNally's house, who were hosting small groups, he drove to McNaughton's house, who were not hosting small group. And so they're walking out the door, and they see Bob driving in, and their, their first thought might be, wait a minute, are we hosting small group, or are we having it someplace else? And so uh, thankfully for them, Bob was just confused, and uh, so then, you know, they, they you guys didn't carpool, but could have, uh, drove over to, uh, to our house for, uh, for a small group. But here's what Bob said, and I thought this was interesting. He said, well, I was praying for McNaughton this morning, and then I ended up just driving to the McNaughton's house tonight. That's a, a small passing comment, but extremely meaningful and important. Like, I was just praying for you this morning. That's one of the ways in which we build one another up into maturity in Christ, is we, we bring one another before the Lord regularly. Something encouraging and would encourage us to do. Number two, look for ways to serve and encourage someone, and I'll add this, especially someone not in your friend group. Right? It's easier to minister to people in your friend group, but, but man, there are a lot of people outside of your friend group who need someone to build them up in, into maturity. So look for a single man or a single woman and invite them over for dinner. Look for a widow who could use your help. Look for a young mom who is exhausted by her children and offer ways to help. Look for members in the hospital or, or shut-ins. Or look for someone who appears to be drifting, who's in danger of forsaking Christ, and look for ways to encourage them and to call them back. If you're praying and serving, it's unlikely you'll be disappointed by the opportunities that, that present themselves in the body of Christ. In his book, Rediscovering Church, Colin Hansen writes this, When I talk with new church members, I make a big promise, he says. And so far, no one has ever returned to complain that I misled them. 
I promise that if they will, one, show up consistently, which he says in our church means corporate worship on Sundays and, and home groups on Wednesdays, and number two, seek to care for others, he says they will get everything they want out of the church. That could be spiritual growth, friendships, biblical knowledge, or practical help. They will get whatever they want from church by fulfilling just those two simple tasks. I think that's helpful in thinking through what involvement in a local church looks like. So friends, look around you. As members of the local church, you have the responsibility to watch out for and oversee their life of discipleship, as well as they have the responsibility to do the same for you. And so, as Ephesians chapter 4 tells us here, then this is our task, to build one another up into maturity. May God help us as we work to do so. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful, we're thankful for these truths that we've considered here. There's so much to unpack and ask your blessing on conversations tonight, a small group, as we think about tangible, practical ways to do this in the lives of one another. But Lord, may you convince us of these truths this morning. And may the members of this church feel the weight of what we've read in Ephesians 4 that pastors are to equip, and that the saints are to do the work of the ministry so that the church is built up so that people reach maturity. So, Lord, let us not still have people on the sidelines, but let us have people, a whole congregation who owns the responsibility because our spiritual lives, our spiritual journeys are too important to sit on the sideline. We need to be players in the game. Bless us, Lord, and help us. Convince us of this. May we put it into practice for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.